So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Be highly clear within the organization of what you're expecting, why you're expecting it, and how you're going to measure it. You know what I mean? Because I I definitely made the error of thinking, well, I want to show these guys that I'm expanding the network. So if I've got five people coming to the table, I'm going to say yes for exactly the same reasons you just mentioned. And 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 those early yeses were some of my bigger errors in the organization. You know, and we learned and, and we adjusted and we made some really awesome moves. But uh, but that that I think if those three things had been right. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today, I'm excited. We're going to have my friend, Bob Morley, on the show. Bob, thanks for making time for this. Thanks, Jess. I really appreciate being here. Um, well, I was glad when you said you could do it. I think it'll be fun to talk about your experience helping companies grow internationally and and you know being a business professor now. And I'm just looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Me too. So so I know you do a few different things right now. What, what are you teaching these days? Well, so I... I normally teach international business. We've got a new professor that joined us from Microsoft, and that's that's his background. So he's teaching both sections here on campus. And then I, I also teach organizational leadership, which I feel like a kid in a candy store and that I get to teach the stuff I've, I've learned about all my life to students who really love it. So we've had a great time with that. And then I teach a course called IBC, which is unique to BYU-Idaho. It's a, it's a course where about 150 students each semester come together and they're divided into companies of between 12 to 18 people. And they start and run a startup for a semester. And it's typically been limited to on-campus selling, but it's it's now been opened up to online with COVID and, and some things like that. So they've They've sparked some additional innovation that's been actually really good for the students and and for the program. So it's it's really fun. Those are the things I teach them. I'm also the associate dean of faculty development here at the university. And what does that mean? Well, mostly what it means is that we have various faculty development programs here at the university, and 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 I as well as associate deans for each college throughout the university, and then the dean of faculty development. We work together to to basically keep our faculty growing and developing in a university model that's distinct from a lot where where growth is based on publishing and based on tenure. We don't we're not a tenured university. We do it totally differently. And and our our duration of the university is based on our quality of teaching more than it is on publishing things. So so the way we do development is different, but it's but it's exciting. So I'm glad you're back there because before becoming an art school dropout, that's where I was going to art school. The you know back when it was called Rick's College originally, and then I was I back there when it was BYU Idaho for another semester before I dropped out for the second time. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. they're not too mad at me. But you know what's interesting is I went to really fancy art schools in Canada, ACAD, places like this, and did tours. But what people, what I think a lot of people don't know about that school, I know we're going to talk about business stuff, but what people don't know about that school is there, at least when I was going, there was an incredible percentage of art center grads. And for people who are not familiar with the commercial design space or like, you know, people who draw stuff for the movies, things like this, the art center, College of Art and Design in Pasadena, California is like the Harvard of commercial art, you know, it's going to, and it probably costs almost as much. (laughs) Like it's like 30, it's like 30, you're going to spend 30 grand a year going there. And Anyways, it, it it's 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 not cheap, right? But you're you if you can hang, if you can actually graduate, you're you, they've got like a 98% placement rate or something. Like wow. you know this cliche about starving artists? Yeah. yeah, not true at Art Center. If you can graduate at Art Center, you've got like a six-figure job in Hollywood waiting for you if you want it. Kind of wow. Thing. You know, some of the the most amazing Ferraris you've ever seen 
those industrial designers went through Pasadena. You know, there's so many art center grads that really dominate. They call it the art center mafia, right? Well, BYU Idaho, when I went, it was like 75% of the professors were art center grads. It was like a mini art center, but I was getting it for four grand a year instead of 30 or something. You know what I mean? At the time, I can't remember. Uh, maybe that was a semester. Anyways, set of 30 grand a semester. But amazing school. I had so much fun. I was just too impatient to become an entrepreneur and dropped out. Yeah. So I'm glad you're back there helping the kids. Listen, uh, you, you've done a few things in life. But one of the things that I think would be most helpful is what I think you should be doing more consulting on, which is what I told you before you started the show. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is your experience, you know? This idea of helping strong U.S. companies expand internationally, it's a unique skill set. And you've, you know, 20 years experience and millions of dollars later, you've got a, you've got a definite track record there. You know, probably most people will recognize the name Franklin Covey. A lot will remember, will know Vital Smarts or books like Crucial Conversations, you know, stuff like this. Probably less know where you and I used to work together at the Arbinger Institute, yeah. but equally as impactful, if not more so, my opinion. Yes. Um, why don't we start with, let's just start with what that has looked for you, what that has typically looked like for you as you've done this in multiple businesses over years, as they, they want to replicate the model in a new country, they kind of want to keep the brand voice, but they also want to adapt to local. Talk, talk me through what you've done, and then let's start going through how to do it. Awesome. Yeah. So my specific background, I worked for three companies in the organizational development space, as you mentioned. And in all three cases, those companies were, they were making a bet that by, by avoiding all of the cost, almost all of the cost of, of building and running offices and hiring people and, and firing people, you know, and, and some of the risks that are inherent with going to a new country, and, and also just the tremendously steep learning curve of learning to sell and market a product in a new country. These companies were betting on the fact that they're saying, you know, our, our intellectual property is, is really our, our product. It's not the salespeople themselves, and, and we'd rather find someone who's already succeeded in that market so that they can so that they can do what we do but in a better way for that market and and so they chose to use a licensing model where they would license their content for a royalty and that means that means a fixed profit margin which is lower than what a lot of people get if they're running their own business and they've they've got it up and running and they've invested millions but it takes a long time at high profits to make back those millions and so these companies were saying we we want to risk our cash in our strongest market, which was for those three companies, the United States. And we instead want someone else to invest the cash and pay us a royalty on all of their revenues. And, and so it was a lower risk model, a guaranteed profit model that, that had some trade-offs, but that was, that was really what we were working on in, in all three of those companies was building and, and running that licensee network. I think one of our biggest challenges in all of those companies was trying to figure out when you have created a partnership like that, how do you, when you don't have control over the incentives and the sales channel and the marketing and all of those things, how do you encourage your partners in a way that's not too heavy handed to, to invest their heart and soul and money and time into building your business versus the other products that they also sell? And, and so that, that was an, an interesting part of the job, but I think probably the most important part of the job when you choose a licensing model. You know, what's interesting to me is you look at like a Franklin Covey, you know, how many people in business have read, how to, uh, have read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, right? And, you know, I think today the market cap is like 300 146 million dollars right and it's interesting how well you've applied that at different sizes businesses different size of businesses all the way from a boutique like arbinger you know a, a substantially sized company at least in the space vital smarts and then you know kind of the 800 pound gorilla franklin covey kind of thing so let's just walk through some basics like what would that look like when you guys initially want to attract somebody is this People who have already generated interest, are you going out to try and generate interest? A little bit of both? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, and it is it is both. Like typically when you're entering a market and it depends on your how strong your brand equity is, you know, Franklin Covey, if you're showing up in a market, you may have already a list of people who have interest. But even, you know, with all three of those companies, there is a certain degree of getting the word out that you'll want to do. And let me think about the best way to, 
So, so you're saying the main question you're asking is the, the process of how you go about it or how yeah. you actually so, get interest. And let's talk about this. Which, which countries have you, have you been in? Have you helped with? Well, I've been to throughout my career. I've, I've, I've worked in 46 different countries, but I would say the, 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 strong, the licensing model you've helped yeah. licensees in how many countries? Um, you know, I've never stopped to count out of those 46, I'd say over, over 25 countries yep. for sure that I've, that I've worked with and, and worked in. It's probably more than that. I'm just trying to be conservative on it, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and the, the strongest countries by far so far in, in that industry have been in Asia outside. Mm, tell of me about that. Well, the main reason for that, I think, is I think there's a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons is that, from a partnering perspective, the each of those companies was fortunate enough. And I don't mean fortune like luck, because there was there was a lot of work that went into it. But they, they they were able to find partners that that were quite strong from a business perspective. You know, it's one thing to find someone who's passionate about your product and who who shows. The potential to do great things, but people who already have some some well-established infrastructure and who who know what they're doing, you tend to be able to find those more easily in Asia in that industry. That doesn't mean that that doesn't exist in Europe and and in Latin America and, and Africa, but but definitely in that industry, you can find more strength out of the gate in the Asian markets. And and also, I think that from a from a target market and a value proposition perspective, the the target market of that kind of organizational development is is quite I think I think just quite ready for that kind of product in Asia. You know, I mean, even in Japan, an extreme example would be with with Deming, where where he went. And you know he's, he he was I think respected in the United States, but when he went to Japan and started into total quality management and things like that, his ideas transformed an entire nation where they were just ready to say, "Hey, you've got a good way to do it. We're going to try it." And and I think that that same feeling permeates a lot of Asian culture. And and so that that idea of being able to say, "If there's a better way to do it, I'm going to try it," is is just an open target market and represents a lot of value out of the gate to an Asian customer. That's great. So I guess my example is, you know, I know some of those folks, I, you know, I know who the Arbinger people are that you're talking about over there. I was like, you know, yeah. specifically Singapore, some of these places, I mean, yeah. Senthal's amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. That guy, that guy's is like, he's just such a high quality human anyways. But indeed. let's start with this. So we have so many people on this show who, you know, maybe they're a fortune 500 CEO or they, they sold a couple big startups and then they write a book and then GE or Amazon wants them to come consult. You know, we've got a lot of folks who have some, some really significant experience that, that their book is based on and then their consulting comes out of it and this kind of work. And, and they yeah. may not be like a, a larger machine, like the full on firms that we were just talking about, but you know, we had David Covey on here who talks about, you know, helping people expand into other countries and stuff. Some, some overlap with things you've done. Right. I worked closely with David for quite a few years and still keep in touch. He's a wonderful man. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Um, yeah. One of the other things, though, that I that it makes me think about is there's probably a lot of rookie mistakes. So let's say somebody, you know, their book does go great. They're, they're asked to be keynote speak, speaker all over and they're, people keep calling and asking for consulting and and they finally get around to going like, wow, this is a lot of work. I should, I should turn this into a training so I don't have to do it all the time, right? And, and they start getting interest from other countries and people are saying like, well, Hey, I, you know, do you have anybody here who could do this? I, you know, maybe I could do this for you here, whatever. Right. Like we have Josh Dimely on the show. We've had him on a couple of times, friend of mine who teaches these great courses on how to, how to write your first book, right. For entrepreneurs. Right. And he's asked me to help with some of the different things. And I've been on these calls where we have people in like all over people in Italy, people, you know, all calling into this thing. And so I can easily see somebody like that getting interest of like saying, Hey, could I, could I be in charge of your program for Italy? Yeah. Let's talk with some rookie mistakes. Some, some entrepreneur who's listening, they wrote the book, they've got this stuff and somebody saying, I would love to represent you out here. Walk me through some rookie mistakes. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're asking it because I've, I've probably made most of them myself. And then some I've just observed by being a part of organizations that have made mistakes along the way. 
by the way, I want to just make a quick segue and 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 put in a, a shout out for Stefan or for for David Covey's business partner, Stefan Mardix. If you can ever get him on the show, he was one of my mentors. He's still a mentor, a great friend, and his his knowledge of international expansion and his approach is fantastic. He's he's from France. He's just a uniquely good human being. So I I, I can't say enough good about Stefan. Yeah, you know, I, I like him and, and he's a good author. You know, yeah. I feel like a total loser. He invited me to be part of one of his collaborative programs. Yeah. And I was, you know, ADD Jess running too many companies and I yeah. never got it done in time and, and didn't finish. So uh, who knows if he'll take my call, but no, I, it's a good, <laughs> just you bringing him up makes me think yeah, I should call him back. He would be great yeah. on the show. He he has really unique experience and and a lot of insight into like, because he's worked with some superstar authors, right? Yeah. Like big names that everybody on here would recognize. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about them, but, and, and, and quite frankly, had to do like a bit of education of like, yeah, that's not how it's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can, right? I can tell you this, it, you know, if it didn't go exactly like you'd planned working with Stefan before, I mean, he's, he's just, a, he's the kind of human being that I think he'd welcome the opportunity to reconnect. I, I know, I know he would. I just feel like yeah. a loser. So yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. So uh, I, I Okay. As long as we're doing shout outs, I literally yeah. just got a text message while we've been here from uh, Trion Muller, oh, who man. who I think it's your fault that we know because of you guys, years of experience at Franklin Covey. He's been on the show as well. You know, went on to went on to actually become the chief product officer of the private equity fund that grew Vital Smarts and then sold it. Wow. Wow. So yeah. Well, good um, on. He's, he's, he's the right guy. That's awesome. So give me a rookie mistake. Somebody from Italy called and said, yeah. I love your stuff. You don't have anybody over here. How about I be your person over here? Well, so, and this is a mistake I made when I went to Arbinger. Arbinger being a smaller company, but with tremendous brand equity for their size, you know, like the, they, they've sold millions of copies of their books. They're, they've done quite well. And, and they're a strong company that, and their product is incredibly strong, even for those who don't know the product. And so when I joined the company, they were already well down the road of having chosen a lot of small partners who had great passion for the product and who who didn't have the business savvy and who were going to learn it along the way. And, and I think Arbinger was also quite young as a company when those relationships were being formed. And so business savvy wasn't at the top of Arbinger's list either. You know, it was they just wanted to change the world with their content. And if they found people who were fellow world changers, they'd sign them up. And and I don't want to in any way disparage the partners that they have, any any of the kind of partners that they have because of the kind of people they are. I, I love them all. But but a lesson along the way is that I think I think it's incredibly important first as a company to to get just crystal clear on the value you bring to the market in general not not a, not just an overseas market but what is the value that you provide and be super clear on that value so that you preserve that value no matter where you go so i don't know anybody who looks in the mirror and says i'm really foggy on the on the value i add Right, okay. right. We're probably pretty self-congratulatory as entrepreneurs and owners and stuff. Sure. What's what's a question? What's a test? How can we have a hard look in the mirror of how clear we are or not? You know, I think for me, a question would have been, do I trust the value of my product enough to go look for the right partner and to be patient and wait for the right partner? You know, because you're right. I think you'd abundantly know you could talk the value through with someone. You could explain at any time. But do I do I trust that value enough to wait until I found someone who's going to do exactly what I need in that market? You know, I think you could you could compare it. Partnership, really, honestly, it's it it can seem like a an easy comparison. But if but if you compare it to looking for a marriage partner, there's a lot of important parallels there. In that in that you know you wouldn't go with the first person who comes along and says. Hey, I could really help you out here in this one area of your life. You know, you, you're like, no, I'm looking for all these areas and I'm not going to mess with something that will distract me from that. And, and I, I think that's point number two, you know, beyond being clear on your value, you've, you've got to be, you've got to be really clear on what the right kind of partner looks like where you can actually put that down on paper. It's not just a discussion in a meeting room, you know, in a, in a, 
conference room, but but you have that ideal partner written down on paper. And if you're unclear on it, it's worth going out and talking to experts in the industry that have done it before and that have failed and that have succeeded to be able to tell you this is the kind of partner you want. And once you have that partner in mind, you, you put the feelers out and there's multiple ways to put the feelers out. But but as you put the feelers out, just be abundantly clear that if someone doesn't match up, that you may not just, you may say, look, you're not right because of X, Y, and Z. And if you were to want to be right, you'd need to bring someone to the table that has X, Y, and Z. And sometimes that can happen. You know, it's not like you have to shut everybody down because they don't match it, but you say you don't match it because of these reasons. And 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 unless you can find a way creatively to fix that, we can't talk anymore. And man, and I don't mean we can't talk anymore like I'm, I'm going to shun you, but but we can't talk about being partners because I just won't go down that road. And, and and the stronger you are in leading that process in your own mind and in your heart, the clearer you get on that, you, you can save yourself years of trouble. I feel like we just end the episode there. I right feel on. like that, that yeah. alone, like we just nailed it. I really like that marriage comparison because part of me goes like, well, if they're doing it all on commission, I don't even have to invest. Like, what does it hurt? And like, look at these, look at these like door to door companies. They'll take anybody who can fog a mirror when they're getting started. Right. right. Maybe, maybe they get more selective over time, but like, you know, it's commission only like what's, where's the risk to me. Right. And yet the risk of wasting time is enormous. Like, you know, we've, we've had a number of the folks from the most elite counterterrorism unit in the world on the show. Right. Out of special ops. And you can't even apply until you're already in the military. Like you can't go from zero to hero. Do you know what I mean? And, and like, it's actually quite hard to get into tryouts. You know, most of them, you don't have to, but most of them have years of experience in special ops already to even, to be allowed to try it. And there's physical testing and there's all these things. Right. And then what's funny is once you get there, they train you like crazy. I mean, like the amount of money they spend on training these guys so they can become like real life, Jason Bournes is just absurd. Right. But they're I feel like I've learned a lot from them on selection and they call, they say selection is an ongoing process just because you got in at first doesn't mean you'll be here forever, you know, but your marriage example is really interesting to me because there's going to be hiccups. There's going to be problems. And this is a person you're going to be working with for a long time. So, you know, don't get pool sharked into, well, it's commission only. I'm sure it'll be fine. Like I don't have anything to lose. I actually have a lot to lose the headaches. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you don't, if you don't pick up someone who has put in the time and effort, meaningful repetitions to achieve a certain level of proficiency yeah. and you want a given result, that means that's going to fall on you in, in a large way. Right. Absolutely. So picking, picking somebody who is already mature enough in that process to, to partner up with, it probably does take discipline and it does say like, like the good, better, best thing, you know, yeah. like saying no to good and good and better in order yeah. to have room still for best. Right. Jess, you're bringing something up that if if I could share another key point that that I I learned to do somewhat over my career, I think one of my what an error that is so easy to to internally perpetuate within a company that wants to grow internationally is the owners of the company when they think about hey we want to expand they they will probably come and look for somebody who knows how to expand in that industry. And the measures that they'll put in place will be things like number of partners added per year. And you'll, you'll create some goals around adding a number of partners. And th- the reality is that you can add one good partner and you can add five mediocre ones. And that one good partner will make five times what those five mediocre ones will make. And, and so up front, the owners and whoever is going to grow that network, it could be the owner, that him, him or herself, but but the or the group of owners but but whoever's in charge of growing it needs to be super clear with whoever's in charge of the actual product or the owners of the product they need to be so clear with one another up front of what is it that we're really trying to achieve because everybody everybody will fall into the trap of well we want to be in 20 countries by by you know 2023 and and so they're like okay here we go we're going after all these countries and and then you start you start making trade-offs where you're marrying people that you don't want to marry i i think i think the the most important thing is just be clear okay right kind of partner <laughs> for sure out of the gate super clear on your value proposition and then and then highly highly clear within the organization of 
what you're expecting, why you're expecting it and how you're going to measure it. You know what I mean? Because I, I definitely made the error of thinking, well, I want to show these guys that I'm expanding the network. So if I've got five people coming to the table, I'm going to say yes for exactly the same reasons you just mentioned. And, and, and those early yeses were some of my bigger errors in the organization, you know, and we learned and, and we adjusted and we made some really awesome moves, but, uh, but that, that I think if those three things had been right out of the gate in all cases, I think we'd be happier. There's a fourth principle that I think is uh, super important for a company that has partners overseas. And it's, it's to remember that, that both sides bring value to the table and they bring value to the table as mutual owners, not as like, not, not as like employees of the company. I think a lot of times that when a company finds partners, they're used to working with employees, so they treat their partners like employees, and and that that can kill the the real entrepreneurial growth that you want. Because then they're then they're just saying, okay, you give me a quota, here's my quota, and they're no longer thinking like an owner; they're thinking like an employee, and that's a tough balance to strike because you want to keep your partners motivated. You don't want to let them sit back if they're not going to fulfill their agreements. And there's ways to do that, but but uh, but that's that's a key point for any network, and, and a lot of companies get that wrong. No, it makes me think of a couple of things. We just had the we just did a joint interview between the guy who grew the guy who was the CEO at Sonic. He, they went from when he started, I think they bought the business for ten million and recently sold it for two point three billion. Wow! And had him on together with the guy who took over Dunkin' Donuts from his dad at like a million and a half dollar valuation, and grew it to eleven billion, right? Wow. Had them on together. It was such a fun interview. Okay. Yeah. And those guys are masters at franchises and they, they love their franchisees. Like they are really in the life of their franchisees. Yeah. And what you're talking about is not a franchise. Yeah. You know, I, obviously I got friendships with, with at least a number of the folks that, that you worked with at Arbinger. Right. And like, they are running that business in that country, yeah. you know? And, and it's funny cause it's not full entrepreneur. They can't just change the book cover and, you know, right. But it's not, it's definitely not employee and it's not even franchisee. That's right. Do you know what I mean? Like they are inventing a business in that country and you're right. I think it is very easy to go like, well, we came up with the material and then you guys use it. Yeah. Like my employees, we came up with the material. Now my employees execute the model and yeah. cor correct me here, but I think about a number of the folk, the friends we've got in common and they're not executing a known business model. They're inventing they're discovering a model for that country. Is that fair? Absolutely. And, and there's a there's a quote I've kept on my wall for years. It's by Peter Senge. He's a fifth discipline. And, yeah, fifth discipline, an author out of MIT. But but he says, don't push growth. Remove the factors limiting growth. And in a licensing business, that's more important than than anything. You know, any other saying I think is. If you're trying to think, well, how can I help my partners grow? A lot of times you think, well, what can I do to push? When that's the wrong question. The, the real question is, I chose them as a partner because they're a successful entrepreneur. And how can I unleash their entrepreneurial zeal for my product? So give me, them... Yeah, give me some examples. Well, okay. So one key example would be like in Japan. In Japan, they're, they are culturally so different from the United States that that it, I think it can be hard for most for most Americans to even understand what those differences might be and how important Japanese culture is and and all of the nuances of their culture getting them right. And so if you've created content that that is geared towards an American audience, then that content may not sell as well in in Japan. And if your partner comes to you and says, you know, I really think if we were to tweak your content, your baby in these five ways, it could really shift in my market. Most companies are going to say no, because they're going to say, don't mess with the baby. When in reality, well, think about the ego involved in that too. Oh yeah. And think about the bias of experience, brother, we, we've been doing this for 25 years already. I'm pretty sure we know what we're doing. Yeah, right? exactly. exactly. Yeah, you've been doing this with Americans for 25 years. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think that's the big issue is, you know, that's just the localization issue, but there's the how you sell it, how you price it, if you if you would be willing to entertain a different model. And and some of those things, most companies are totally unwilling to do because because they say, you know, you, you can't mess with my secret sauce. And and there's some there's some definite truth to wanting to protect your secret sauce. But there's got to also be a humility of when they come with a suggestion like that, instead of saying, let's have a let's have a half hour conference call and I'll tell you no, 
it really needs to be, tell me more, explain that to me and help me understand. Cause I, I have a hard time for reasons X, Y, and Z with, with allowing anyone to mess with my content, but tell me a little bit more, help me understand your market. And, and maybe we can make a good decision as partners. And, and that person in that whole process should feel like a partner who is allowed to be creative in the process because that creativity is what's going to build your, both of your future, your, your mutual success. And on the other side of that balance beam. So, you know, you can protect yourself out of profits, right? Yeah. Yeah. On the other side of that, what does the, how do you not let the tail wag the dog? How, like, what's a test? What can you ask yourself? How do you, how do you make sure you're not losing your soul at the same time? Now, that's an awesome question. I, I think I think you addressed something that that any content company would need to to address very carefully. It, it's going to be different by industry. You know, if you're if you're selling Nikes, you'll have a different set of rules than if you're than if you're selling than if you're selling content and ideas. But I think I think one of the things that 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 would be wise is early on, as soon as you decide you want to expand internationally, seek the counsel of someone who's done it before. And, and and really have them there in the room with you when you set some parameters on what what guardrails ought to be in place around your product. You know, where you, where you say, these are things that absolutely cannot change because it's part of the theory. It's part of what makes it magical for the customer. And and even if it's even if it bugs certain people in your country, it bugs people in our country too. And we like it that way. You know, you know I mean that that's the kind of thing where where you've got to be abundantly clear from the from the outset with your with your partner and say, these are areas that I don't ever want you to touch, that we don't ever want you to touch because they're sacred to us. And then and then, but knowing what the guardrails are, you have you have a lot of room for creativity in between there. And let's talk right now about what that creativity might look like. So that instead of just being ready to say, I'll listen when they have a creative idea, you're actually encouraging them from the beginning to be creative. Yeah. Are there any books out that you, that you would recommend? Gosh, I bet there are. There's one book that, that I've got on my shelf. It's, it's from a group of from a father-son team in Australia who wrote a book specifically about expanding internationally and creating a, a strong network of partners. And I, I wouldn't say that they're wildly successful financially. They are successful in their own right in that they're highly profitable and they run a good network of partners who are representing smaller brands in terms of the- Do you remember the name or anything? Well, their top brand was an organization called Think on Your Feet, which was fairly well known, and and they still do a a fair amount of business in that. It's Designing the Networked Organization, and it's by Ken Everett. And his his son, Pete, is the one that's really driving the business right now. I absolutely love those guys. As I've interacted with them over the years and we've compared notes, they've been great to work with. And I think the principles that they have in that organization are, are in that book are a really nice summary that could help someone have a roadmap or an outline of what they're going to be trying to do in their organization. They may not do everything the same, but they will get the categories of, of thought that they ought to be thinking through before they launch internationally. Or if they've already launched internationally and they want to do it better, you can, you can, always, you can always change, right? And, and uh, yeah. So let's go another direction. Let's say that oh. I, I'm younger in the, you know, we we don't have all sorts of international demand yet and I need to generate it, right? Yeah. People don't know who I am and I need to go invent a presence in Singapore or Japan or Australia or Italy or Central America. T- tell me some activities to get the word out that you're you're open to licensees. Great. One of the things you can do is an early on thing that you can do to get people who have interest in you is to just make sure that on your website that you have a page that says something like partner with us, you know, and, and it makes your value proposition really clear for both your product, but also your, your partner model. And so if you, if you want that, you've got to invite people to the table who are really interested in that. And the, the website can be both a filter to keep people who might have passion but aren't aren't close to being capable of doing what you need done. You can be a filter for them, but it can also be an attractor for those who are looking for what you do. And especially if you make your philosophy of partnership clear and you you provide some safety for them to engage in that conversation and to to feel like, yeah, if I partner with you, I'm going to be I'm going to be having a good experience. 
So the website is, is a key starting point because that will also help you to sell your ideas and your partnership model as you do go overseas. If you have those tools up front, you'll just be better off. The second thing I would say is you can partner with an organization like SMCOV, which is David Covey and Stefan Mardix, who we mentioned before, but you can partner with an organization who specializes in international expansion and finding partnerships. They're, they're, they're really a partner finding or matchmaking service. And or they, they should be connecting with you on LinkedIn and trying yeah. to contract you as a consultant. That's right. And and that those guys are for the content industry or the organizational development industry. But even, you know, there there are groups like in Utah, they have the World Trade Center and then the Governor's Office of Economic Development. And from a state government perspective, those organizations are connecting with potential partners all the time and connecting with organizations who do partnering. Like there was an organization who presented it to us once that all they do is find maquilador or or border partners for companies who are wanting to manufacture in Mexico. So that there's services like that through government entities. And, and another government entity that's powerful in finding partners because they, they do it through their embassies around the world is the, is the U- United States government. It's the U.S. Commercial Service. And what they do is you you actually give them give them a very clear description of the kind of partner they're looking for, and and our government, our United States government, actually pays people who who are good at finding relationships and finding potential partners to go out and do all the research for you. And literally, the whole process, I believe, costs about a thousand dollars. And and you What's can. What's it go, called? U.S. Department of Commerce. Um, it's the the United States Commercial Service, I believe, is what it's called. USCS. And doing it now. Yeah, yeah. That name may have changed over over time. I mean, it's been a couple of years since I've worked with them. Yeah. No, it's trade.gov. Okay, that's it. Yeah. International Trade Administration now. That's what they're calling it, I think. And they have, the United States government has set it up to where they have a state representative office. And so through your state, you'll connect with them. And they're usually working hand in hand with the World Trade Center, with the governor's office of economic development and and with the that federal entity. But, but that group will actually act as a consultant for you to find some potential partners. And, and you can actually go overseas. They'll help you get your hotel. They'll help you get set up. They'll bring people to their offices for your interviews, which can be, that's really nice from a ease and a cost perspective. But you, you don't ever want to sign partners without going to their office and meeting their team. But, but it's nice for the initial interviews. But, but you would never use that as your final interview because... You don't know anybody until you until you feel what it's like to work with them. Yeah. So there's a principle that I'm going to guess you're going to support, and you can tell me if you don't. But awesome. uh, you know, date date for, date for a long time before you get married. Is yeah. there some is there some element of that here? There is. I mean, I, I support that wholeheartedly. The challenge in a in a business environment where you're trying to form a partnership is it's hard to figure out what dating would look like because dating in a in a business relationship means that both people would have to be willing to invest before there's any real agreement. And that that's pretty tough. But what you can do is the kind of dating like we're mentioning, you can go to their office, meet their people, talk with their clients, all of those kinds of things. That's good dating. But then there's another dating period that that I think is wise. And that is in your agreement to set up a launch period that, that gives them plenty of runway to be able to struggle and make mistakes. And it doesn't create pressure up front that's going to kill the relationship before it's time. So you don't want to do that, but you do want to create some safety nets in there to where if it's not working out for you or for them, you can both pull the plug without... What's an example? What, what's a clause like that? What's a What does that look like? Well, one example would be to say something like, you have one year to get to X revenue number. And during that year, we'll, we'll support you in ways X, Y, and Z. And, and, and the kind of investments you'll be making are A, B, and C. And, and if at the end of the year, during that period, you haven't arrived to that level, we, re- we reserve the right to pull the plug. Or also, 
and you do really want to be reciprocal in your agreements so it doesn't feel like a boss to employee relationship and some reciprocity would be to say also these are the commitments we make to support you and help you throughout that year and if if at any time you feel like it's just not working out for you you can also pull the plug and here's what pulling the plug will look like here's how we get our intellectual property back here's how we pre- protect one another's trade secrets and and those kinds of things but but to make it so that so that you're setting one another up to be able to break out of the relationship as if it were as if you were not yet married that that's really important that's great so great i think this could be well i think what i think is great about it is it's almost like a no fault divorce clause right yeah like yeah. think about how many people we've all hired who interviewed really well and then just did, was not the match we thought it was. Right? Like, why not build a little humility into it of like, neither of us have a crystal ball about the future. Let's be honest about that. I hope this goes amazing. And if either of us feels like it's not, like why, why, like why stick together? We can probably both find something better. You know? Yeah. Well, and yeah. And, well, and if I pull the plug, I'm going to do everything I can to mitigate the harm to you because I know you will have been investing along the way. And here's what mitigation will look like. Like, like if you if you have if you have a significant number of sales lined up, but we feel like it's not going to work out, we're not going to pull the rug out from under you. We'll allow you to harvest the fruit of that labor over X period of time. That that kind of stuff, just to to make sure that it feels like, wait, so if at the end of the year I haven't met one of these requirements, you're just going to kill me. It's like, no, 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 this is what it looks like. We we really, we know you're investing and we want to recognize that. Yeah, yeah. I think it could feel overwhelming for people to consider this. And and it can be such a such a fear of the unknown of like, man, I can just feel safe to stay at home. And any thoughts for people who are like, they're dabbling, they maybe have some wishful thinking about it, but, but diving in, they just don't even know where to start or it feels overwhelming? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I think that the... What I would do in that situation if I were overwhelmed is I would I would I would go again go to someone who has some expertise in the industry and get them to create like a, a checklist for you of you know, you'd have things on there like make sure that I've got a draft agreement that that gets after the real feeling of what I want in that partnership. And and I would ask that person for your product to help point you in the right direction for the ideal target market. And if you've got two or three target markets that you really want to look at, then before th- saying, hey, we're beginning international expansion, we're going to go start into 10 countries, just think, actually, I really love Singapore. That seems like the right market for me, or it could be Japan, it could be Zimbabwe, you know, I mean, it, it could be depending on what your product is, but 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 choose that target market and use that as your proving ground and go find a partner in that go find a partner who already demonstrates a real willingness to grow and learn with you and grow and learn together and make the ideal kind of partner relationship and then and then replicate that once you've had a chance to try it. Yeah. It's funny how many of your answers are go talk to people who've already been through it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there's some wisdom in that and, yeah. and, and probably multiple people, right? Yeah. You know, just there's something that, that comes to mind also because of our background with Arbinger. It's something I felt long before joining Arbinger and, and Arbinger was a real fit for me for this and many reasons, but it it's, it's that when you're building your network and you're thinking about the market, you're, you're thinking about your target market, you're thinking about your target partner. Arbinger has a saying of see people as people, which sounds so obvious. And yet, especially in, in approaching a market or approaching a potential partner, it is so easy to see people as potential dollar signs. Um, Walking ATM machines? Yeah, yeah. And and to to make decisions based on what's going to what's going to yield the most financial fruit yeah um, without really Kip. thinking man what what's going to make this magical and then we count on the on the financial fruit once we've created a magical relationship with our customers and our partners so by the way i have to tell you chip youth is coming on the show like day after tomorrow oh awesome he was he was episode number one so i figure after 500 episodes we need to have him back on you know, so many great coworkers that we had there changed my life forever, including Chip and Jack Hallwell, you know, but like to me, Mitch Warner had such an effect. My first mentor I ever had who was younger than me, you know, yeah. 
And like he wants, he has goals, he has ambitions, and he is so willing to like push pause and think through what does this mean for humans? What does this mean for the other people? Like he's so willing to put his agenda aside and think it through at a human level, which sounds so like not dramatic when I say it on my outside voice, but when you witness it and you're like, oh geez, like I was trying to get crap done here. And he's like, oh, let's hit pause for a minute, you know? And, and he's, he's like, he's just so committed to his integrity. You know what I mean? Like, I remember we had a, we had a tough situation going on one situation at one point and he was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know, man, I guess we just do what's right and let the consequences follow. (laughs) I'm like trying to like force it to work. And he's like, and he's not, he's like really concerned about doing what's right. And he's trying to be smart and he's willing to like, I've never met anybody so willing to consider they were wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and have it not be threatening. Like you can tell him his idea stinks and be like, Oh, really? Tell me about that. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. And you could like, I I've watched people go off on him. I mean, just really like, you know, not have a lot of emotional intelligence in their response, whatever. And he'll be like, huh. And then he'll make his own decision. It won't be like, he won't be swayed because of them and he won't be ignoring them. He just takes it as more information and goes back and tries to make what he, the decision to think is right. Even if they're not going to be happy yet, so willing to let you he's so willing to consider he might be wrong i just never seen anybody like that or like i look at like chris wallace or terry warner like i've been in events with him where they were like somebody's losing their mind somebody's like this is all wrong you're a terrible person i don't know (laughs) right or they're like they're going on and on and on and they'll like they'll bring up some good point and it's like terry didn't hear any of the rest of the smoke he's going straight for the fire he's like you know i just really agree with you on this and he talks about like the 10 percent he agreed with pretends the rest doesn't even exist he doesn't have to have a fight about it and he just wins people over like like nothing right anyways it just so many of those relationships chris you know chris wallace i remember i was going to teach the naval special warfare for the first time actually chip came with me and i was like hey chris i just realized it's gonna take about a tenth of a second for every one of those guys to realize they're tougher than me like what am i here doing teaching them What am yeah. I doing here to teach Navy SEAL? Because he'd been doing that contract beforehand, yeah. right? Yeah. And he says, well, you can do what I do, Jess. I'm like, well, what's that? He's like, well, I just start the meetings off by saying, I'm not here to tell you how to do your job. I don't know how to do your job. I'm here to tell you what I've been studying for the last couple, de- you know, for the last couple decades, number of years. And yeah. then it'll be your job to tell me how it applies to your job. Yeah. It was like, it was like a magic trick, you know? Wow. It just so diffused the situation, right? The tension of like, who's this guy? What's he going to tell me, right? I've used that intelligence agencies, for-profit, non-profit, government, ever since. So thank you, Chris Wallace. We should have him on the show. But I think what's so fun for me is, I think I'd been there for maybe a year and a half or two years before you came over. And, and you, you brought just a whole different aspect. Cause you know, I, I love Senthal. I love, you know, you know, folks from Denmark and all over had such great conversations with over the years. Right. But when you came, there was like this different, like, let's get serious about this. It wasn't just a family reunion. You're like, let's make some money. Let's, let's get out there. And, and you, you brought like a, a different entrepreneurial zeal that no one else, you know, like no one else there was thinking like you. And it, and it was, anyways, it was really fun for me to like, go over to your office and ex- like whiteboard, like hear about all the ideas you whiteboarded up. Well, I appreciate that. Cause you, you actually influenced a ton of my ideas just cause you're so well read. I mean, you're, you're thinking all the time about what's, what can I learn now? What can I learn now? And you're willing to share that. And it, it, I, I, it helped me a lot. It helped our whole company just to have those ideas at the forefront of our mind, you know, and that creativity was a huge help. I think one of the things that I respected a lot about the way you do business and, and it says a lot about who you are as a person is you're very patient and like you take the long view. Like I can be very impatient and like, you know, like the fish are cut bait people, let's do this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you just like, you endure, you keep going back. You, you can, you continue to work it and you, you optimistically help them solve problems and you're not so bothered when there is a problem. I'm like trying to keep everybody happy. And you're like, Hey man, this is, we got, we got to work on this. And you're, and you're not like promising everything's fine. And it's just like a real honesty about it. And you didn't like, I think that I've made many mistakes in business by shying away from conflict that should have happened and instead of you know like talking about the real issue and i feel like you like i feel like you set a good example for respectfully saying we've got an issue without demonizing them to say it well that means a lot to me i i 
it's it's funny because if you were to say if you were to say Bob, what are your biggest regrets from any of your of your experiences working with partners over the years? And I, I would include this from when I, I was general manager of Franklin Covey Mexico for about a year and a half, and I I think. I'm really grateful that you say that because I think also some of my biggest regrets are times when I did shy away from conflict and 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 not looking at what the real problem was that that we were facing and treating it as everyone at the table being people who matter. You know what I mean? Not just how do we solve our company's problem, but how do we solve our mutual problem in a way that's going to work for everybody. And I think in our in our world, it's so easy to see when there's a problem like that to say, well, you know, we talked about it. We 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 sat at the table once and it didn't work out. In fact, the problem got worse. So it's time to go to battle and we're going to end our relationship. We're going to, you know, heads are going to roll or, or whatever. When in reality, it may just be that you were scratching off a scab that was really important to scratch off and it's worth staying at the table. You know what I mean? And I, I know when I was at Vital Smarts, one of our authors interviewed a FBI negotiator. They sat on a flight together, and he said he said that that in negotiating with in a in a high stakes situation, respect is like air. And as soon as a person notices that respect is gone, then the conversation goes up in smoke. You know what I mean? Like like immediately they they start to 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 yep. back off and to even turn violent in some of those cases. But but when respect leaves the the table when you're working with a partner, then then you've lost everything that you signed up for, everything that you were looking for. You know, whether that's whether that's a marriage relationship or a partner relationship with your business partner, in in either case, once respect is gone, if you if you're not willing to do the work to get it back, then then you've shot yourself in the foot. And I'm glad I've made some progress in that area and that you noticed it. That means a lot to me. Thank you. <laughs> well, you bet. And for anybody who wanted to work on that, I'll give a shout out to where you used to work, who ended up becoming a client of mine at Vital Smarts, that book, Crucial Conversations. Like yeah. to me, I feel like way too many people are eager to, under the guise of under the guise of embracing conflict, just be rude. You know, it's like when somebody says, not to be rude, whatever they say next is going to be rude. That's right. right. It's like when, when somebody says, well, I just call it how I see it. It's like, I would prefer to not be emotionally disciplined on being respectful for others is what they should have said. Like, hello, we all see tons of things that that are not helpful, polite, or kind to bring up. Yeah. Do Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. There's so many things that we wish we could say, we just wouldn't feel good about ourselves as humans if we did. Yeah. Right. But using the, like, I call it how I see it as a rationalization. Yeah. Like, anyways. Yeah. There's, there's a powerful principle in crucial conversations. It's one of my favorite principles in my life. It really is, is they call it start with heart. But the whole idea is when you're entering a discussion like that, you first sit down and really think, what do I actually want? And, and, and you can let go of a lot of things of, well, I want them to feel bad about what they said to me because you realize, well, that's not going to help. Especially if you had to write that down, right? Yeah. I want them to feel bad that they yeah. that yeah. they said that thing that I didn't appreciate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it could be a father son relationship where you say, you know, I well, I want my son to I want my son to never stay out past the past the wrong hour again, or I want him never to think about smoking again, or or things like that. And instead, think, well, what I really want is a deep, lasting relationship with my son, and I want him to succeed in life. And I want him to know that. And I want him to feel that in our conversation, you know, and, and just by changing what we want at the outset, it can change a lot of things. And that goes back to this international partnership idea. If you're abundantly clear about the kind of relationship you want and you, you're you upfront with one another about that from the beginning, you can work out all kinds of kinks because you can keep coming back to that vision together and say, this is what we're after. And we're missing the po- we're missing the boat right now. How do we fix that? Yeah. You know, um, staying with the parenting one for one second, Yeah, uh, it makes me think, I don't know what parenting book it was for my wife, but there was this thing about you need to connect before you correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it might actually be the only parenting book that I tell everybody they need to read, which is it's by Dr. Gordon Neufeld. Dang it. I'm going to have to look it up. But, but it's been interesting by, by my wife, like repeating that a hundred times, how many times I go to correct a kid and I realize, oh, I'm not in a good place. I I'm out of tune. Like, on, you know, 
uh, on the radio frequency of human to human here. I, I'm out of tune. Yeah. And, and like, I better get myself in line if this is going to, you know, like, you know, I have some knee jerk reaction to something they've done. And if I correct them from that place, it it's going to reduce our relationship. It's probably not going to work. There, there's so many things, right? And that like, it's funny how often my wife, my wife ringing in my ears about connect before you correct, right? Has turned into, has turned into me like having to stop and tell a joke and get them to smile and get myself to smile beforehand. And then my version of correction becomes deeply different as soon as that's over, right? I'm having lunch with my wife in a little bit and I'm going to share that with her. We're going to put it on our wall or something because that's powerful. Here's the book. I talk about a million books on this. This is like, this is one of the most influential books in my life. Hold on to your kids by Dr. Gordon Neufeld. How do you spell his last name? N-E-U-F-E-L-D and Gabriel Mate, M-A-T-E. Okay. And it's it's just incredible of like going through peer orientation these days and how for the first time in like centuries, actually, in this, in the sixties, what started happening is kids started creating greater attachments to their friends and their parents. And he's like, and if that doesn't seem weird to you, it's probably because you grew up like that. Right. And he goes through history, how often that was, but how unhelpful this is for children because other kids, it's not great to anchor yourself to another kid because the other kid isn't anchored typically. Right. And he just goes through teen suicide rates and all, he just goes through all these things that set a kid up to not have the life you probably want for them as a parent. And like he, he, I'll leave with this. He says, if your spouse was at dinner and constantly like leaving the second was over, doesn't want anything to do with the family, constantly trying to figure out how to get out of family things, won't spend time with you, always, always wants to be gone and out of the house and doing things with other people other than you guys. Would, would your friend's advice be like, have you set your expectations on what you expect from your spouse? Have you, you know, you put, you might need to drop the hammer, Bob, you know, yeah. no, yeah. they would say your spouse is having an affair. <laughs> Maybe like, do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. That type of deep connection relationship is happening with kids to kids instead of kids to parents and kids to adults who are grounded. Yeah. And I started the book. I was like, man, this guy is, this guy is losing it. Like, this is not that big a deal. Like yeah. I grew up like that. I turned out fine. Then you start reading the rest of the book and you're like, dang. And, and like, he started doing things like he would take his, so he noticed his, te- his teens becoming more peer oriented. Right. And so he did things like took the whole family on like a three week vacation. Like his teenager hates it. Doesn't want to come with him. They're like going on walks and she'll like walk like 10 feet in front of them or 10 feet behind there and won't whatever. Right. And it like takes a while for this teenager to want to walk with her dad and actually have real conversations with him and have having to like him having to realize like this has to be rebuilt and, you know, sending them all day to school away from us, not having them work with us because we don't work on farms. We don't have the agrarian culture that humanity existed in for however many centuries and whatever this kind of stuff. Right. Um, And connect before you correct. I'm pretty sure it's from that book. And man, if it doesn't like pin me down as a dad so many times, I'm like, oh, I'm not dialed in with this kid. I probably got to fix that first before I fix the kid. I got to fix myself first before I try and fix the kid. Hey, I've got my homework assignment now, big time. (laughs) You didn't know this is going to be a parenting show. This turned into like a marriage and parenting show, people. That's right. That's right. Uh, listen, I've enjoyed our friendship so much. Looking forward to years more of it. Let's let's end with this. Why don't you give us an, another book recommendation or two, and then what advice you'd give a younger version of yourself? Gosh. Okay. Okay. Another book recommendation. I mean, some obvious ones: Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, because it influenced my whole life, and it still does. I still teach about it. It's it's powerful. The Arbinger Institute books, the Vital Smarts books, they're all outstanding. They really are. One book that's had a tremendous influence on my life and an author who I admire to know and unfortunately passed away just last year, but it's a, a book called How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. And he basically uses business theories that he's been testing and using for years and then applies them to our lives to figure out how to measure our life in such a way that we'll have a fantastic life. And since reading that book, my life has dramatically improved and and, uh, so has my business life. It, It really is a powerful book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Can't recommend it enough. If I could give advice to myself. Just just uh, before you do that, I need to endorse your endorsement. Okay. That book is so good. Yeah. That book is so good. I feel like it's like a bait and switch though, because, you know, famous Harvard professor wrote the innovators dilemma thinkers 50, you know, just so highly recognized. He writes this book. He starts telling you like, 
oh, isn't it crazy how such and such business does this practice that is unlikely to get them the result that they would want? You're like, yeah, right. Yeah. And he's like, so here as an ambitious person, you're probably doing that at home too. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> it's so <laughs> condemning because it's too late to say you don't agree with the principle. That's you're right. Like, oh, I'm yeah. doing that. That's well said. It's well said. And I, I, I can't recommend it enough. I'm glad you share my opinion. It's fantastic. Okay. Advice you'd give a younger version of yourself. So, you know, the, I think the most important advice I would give myself is to take seriously the quest for integrity and, and general goodness. And I've, I've had a quest for integrity and general goodness throughout my life, but in as much as I have not honored that quest at different times in my life, it's affected my confidence and my power, you know, and, and if I could go back and say, and say, I just say, Bob, never mess around with things that don't match what you already know to be true, because the, the closer you can live aligned with what you know and believe is right, the more confidence, the more strength, the more, the more good decision making you're going to have. And the quicker you'll recover when you make a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes, but, you, but you'll recover differently. And in as much as I have sought to live a life of integrity and goodness, it's blessed me no end. But my biggest pain in life has come when I haven't honored that quest. I think about all the times I've rationalized, like, you know, this guy probably isn't the best guy of all time, but the deal is just so good. And I think we can control it this way. And between us and the other shareholders, we can keep them in line. Yeah. You know, I got two like huge multi-million dollar mistakes in my life from that exact rationalization. Yeah. And like, you know, I guess you can only live life forward. Regrets aren't that helpful unless they prevent you from making the mistake again. You know? That's right. I think that's, I think that's such solid advice. And I, I think one of my favorite words you used there was confidence, yeah. you know, back to the Mitch Warner thing. And, and I got to give a shout out to Mike Merchant too. Man, that yeah. guy's a high quality human. Oh, heck yeah. Um, you know, Mitch's thing of do it's right. Let the consequences follow. That's right. Man, even when things haven't worked out, when I can sleep at night, for some reason, it makes things better. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say neither you, I, neither you nor I would, I would never expect either of us to be caught doing something dishonest or, or just blatantly wrong. Right. But man, it's those rationalizations of small things where you say, well, I'm, I'm going to try this. You know what I mean? Or, or I'm going to go down this road. Nobody's looking in those small things. It just puts the chink in our armor that, that costs us later. And man, yeah, definitely. That's the one thing I would do differently is, is just be a better human being. And I'm, I'm trying really hard. So are you. I mean, I, I really admire you, you know, for what it's worth. I just think Jess is a good human being. Uh, and I think you feel the same about me. And yet, yet we know the whole story. And in that whole story, there's parts that we're not proud of. And the, the, if I could fix them, I'd, I'd go back and I'd change those. I love it. Well, thank you for always supporting us with, with Child Rescue Association and, and our work there. And thanks for making time for this. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, thanks for being a, a constant value add to everyone you talk to. I, I, I never leave a conversation without feeling better. So I appreciate it. <laughs> talk soon. Thanks. Bye, everyone.